Well, hello, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show that was originally a Boomer Boulevard show that was broadcast on April the 22nd in 2019. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Anybody out there who whose favorite month of the year isn't April? Ah, oh, it's gorgeous. Chester has tables and chairs set outside on the patio, so we're going to listen to the show outside on the patio on this beautiful day. Crystal blue sky. High temperature today is supposed to be like 75, 76. It is gorgeous. Welcome, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the podcast where we play old-time radio shows. We remember from when we're kids because we're baby boomers. Now, some of these we remember from later on being television shows. Some of them we just remember the actors. Most of us heard some of these shows uh, when we were kids. Everybody loves them. So if you've never heard old-time radio, you're in for a treat, especially tonight, Chester, because we have a great, great lineup tonight. We have an episode of Nightbeat that is really dramatic, features William Conrad in it. We also have an episode of the Jack Benny Show that is just laugh-out-loud funny. You're going to love it. We're going to follow that up with a very poignant story on The Six Shooter with Jimmy Stewart, and then finally a tense, suspenseful episode of Gunsmoke. So that's the lineup. Chester is in his uh, hockey hockey jersey. <laughs> We're in playoff season, right? Chester's a hockey fan. And uh, we're all set to go, so make yourselves comfortable because we're going to get started in just a moment.
opening things up tonight with a little radio noir. We're going to go into the dark streets and alleys of Chicago late at night with Randy Stone, the writer of the Nightbeat column for a great Chicago newspaper. And tonight, Randy meets up with an ex-football player he remembers from the university. Things have not been going so well for this individual, who is played, by the way, excellently, just excellently, by William Conrad. Frank Lovejoy stars as Randy Stone in one of the best radio programs of the era. Here we go. Nightbeat from June the 12th, 1950, The Football Player and the Syndicate. On stage tonight, transcribed from Hollywood, Nightbeat, another in the Wheaties' big parade of exciting half-hour presentations. Night Beat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the Night Beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. This one began when I bumped into a wonderful legend out of the past. And watch that legend die before my eyes. Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. You know, I guess the one thing that makes a newspaper guy like me different from any other working stiff is that while a bookkeeper works with numbers, carpenter deals in wood, and the miner sweats over coal... A newspaper man, well, all he works with is people. What makes them laugh and dance in the street, what makes them cry in the night. But just the same, like most kinds of work, this has its occupational hazards, too. Being a newspaper man doesn't give you painter's colic or housemaid's knee. But sometimes it can sure do some lousy things to your heart. It was my night off. I, I had a date with a little blonde at the information desk. You know, the girl who tells you where to go after you tell her what you're looking for. I finally talked her into going dancing. I was supposed to pick her up at 9 o'clock. Only here it was 8.30 and I was still trying to find a flower shop to buy her a corsage. I'd walked to the edge of Skid Row when I finally spotted this place. A little florist shop in the center of a shabby office building. Looking through the window, I saw a gray-haired old lady pinning a boutonniere on the lapel of a chunky fellow in a shiny blue serge. As I came through the front door, the fellow spun around like he was expecting the worst. Who? Will you hold still so I can get this flower in place? Huh. I'm sorry, Mrs. Dunlap. I'm expecting somebody. I thought maybe this fellow might be the one. All right. Now, you just stay quiet. I'll be with you in a moment, sir. All right. There's no hurry. No hurry at all. There, now. Isn't that beautiful? My husband set it aside especially for you. <laughs> Tell your husband thanks, I... I don't know, no matter how punk I feel, if I get a fresh flower in my lapel, it picks me up better than a shot of raw gin. Uh, how much do I owe you? Fifty cents. Uh, here you are. Oh. Oh, I'll pick it up. You seem upset tonight. This person you're going to meet must be quite important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he sure is. He's the man who's going to put me out of my misery. 
What? <laughs> sure. Uh, tell your husband next time I need a flower, he, he better make it a nice white lily. <laughs> Goodbye. Oh, that fella's sure upset. Oh, poor Tom Paxton. I've seen him like this before. He's just had a wee bit too much to drink, I'm afraid. Tom Paxton? No. Huh? The rose in his lapel used to be his trademark. Oh, do you know Tom? Well, if he's the same one, I was never that lucky. Best I could do was worship him from a distance. Worship Tom? Yeah, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Ten years ago, when I was in college, Tom Paxton was the greatest football star we'd ever had. He was one of the greatest in the country. He was a legend. Oh, well, it can't be the same man. I don't know. Once you get over the shock, the resemblance is there, and that rose in the lapel. I don't know, Eddie, but I want to find out. I went out the side door of the florist shop into the lobby. And there was Tom standing in the dark, pushing the button for the elevator. As I came up to him, he spun around again like it was part of an act that he always did on cue. Are you following me? Well, yes. You weren't just shopping for flowers there, were you? Hmm? If you're Dixie, all right. Don't play games with me. I'm tired of running away. I'm, I'm half bats. How much of it can I take? Now, look. Look, I'm Randy Stone. I, I heard the woman call you Tom Paxton. When I went to college, there was a Tom Paxton who was just about the greatest football player who ever lived. What are you talking about? You got me mixed up with three other guys. Well, this Tom Paxton was always sporting a flower in his lapel. There's no law against that, is there? Now, go on. Get out of here. Let me alone. While we were talking, the light over the button of the self-operating elevator flashed on. The elevator was coming down. Well, if Tom Paxton didn't want me to bother him, I couldn't twist his arm. I turned to leave just as the elevator doors opened. Only instead of Tom stepping in, somebody else stepped out. I was waiting for you, Paxton. You're Dixie, aren't you? Come again? Aren't you? Sure, that's where I got this sudden accident. Now, listen Come to me. Come on. Somebody wants to see you. Why doesn't the syndicate give me a break? Why don't they give me a chance to pay up? I said, come on. Oh, now, wait a minute, Buster. You ain't invited, sport. This is one of them small affairs. Paxton, this gun in my pocket, it ain't one of them gadgets you pull the trigger and a cigarette pops out. Come on. Tom and the mug went out to a small black sedan parked at the curb. As the car raced down the street, I ran across the lobby into Dunlop's flower shop and called the police. When the squad car arrived, I told the boys what little I knew. We found Tom's office on the fourth floor. It told me more about his life since he left college than a 600-page biography. A battered couch... A filing cabinet with nothing filed away except a half-empty bottle of gin. And a beaten-up desk that gave up a couple of old racing forms. And then on the wall behind the desk, I saw something that really grabbed my heart. A picture of the college football team. With Tom right in front with a pigskin in his arms. Smiling defiantly like nothing bad could ever happen to him. I hung around after the police left. The picture made me feel low. I wondered how many beatings you had to take to go from All-American to Skid Row to maybe the county morgue. Then the office door opened and Tom was standing in the doorway. Only he looked different. He didn't seem to be so frightened anymore. Well, I hear there were cops all over the place. What are you trying to do, get me some publicity? Did Dixie give you a stay of execution? No, that wasn't Dixie. Just one of Frank Burr's tough guys. Burr, the big shot political? Yeah, that's right. Had a little assignment for yours truly. Oh, yeah? How many times do you have to vote for him? Oh, it's nothing like that. I'm going to conduct a little investigation. 
Ah, so you remembered the old halfback, huh? I thought you didn't know what I was talking about. No, well, I had a lot on my mind downstairs. Wasn't in any mood to chew the fat. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing these days? I, uh, I work on a newspaper. Oh, is that so? Oh. Well, me, like you see, I went into the investigating game. It's not much of an office, but, uh, if big shots like Burr come to me, I guess it's not so bad, huh? No, I guess not. Uh, say, this fellow Dixie I mentioned, I... I don't want you to get any funny ideas about him. I just gambled a little over my head, you know, like anybody does now and then. Well, I owe the syndicate a few thousand bucks, so they think they can scare me by putting their hatchet men on my trail. Only if you remember Tom Paxton, you, uh, know he don't scare so easy. Right? That's right. Now, yeah, that reminds me. I better call the boys right now and tell them I'll settle up at the end of the week. You know, I don't want them losing any sleep on my account. Well, uh... I'll be going, Tom. No, 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 kid. Stick around, stick around. I'd like to talk to you, kid. About old times, eh? All right, okay, Tom. Hello, Jack. Hiya, kid. This is Tom Paxton. Say, uh, look, baby, I got some good news for you. I'll be able to settle with you boys at the end of the week. Well, I know I have, but this time it's on the level. Well, uh, now, now, wait a minute, Jack. Don't, don't hang up on me. Well, now, give me a break, baby. Three days? Oh, but I can't do the job in three days. No, wait, please, don't hang up. Okay, okay. Three days. Only tell Dixie to lay off. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. Thanks a lot. Three days. How am I going to find him in three days? Um, uh, Tom... Is there anything I can do? What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's something you can do. You can clear out of here. So you found me out, huh? That make you feel good or something? Oh, now, look. Maybe if you'd taken the beatings I have, maybe if you'd been crossed up, stabbed in the back, slugged, cheated as many times as I have, you... Oh, what am I telling you for? Go on, get out of here. Sure thing. So long, Tom. No. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah? Look. You being a reporter, you could get into records I couldn't even touch, couldn't you? Well, I think so. Look, if I had a week, I could do it on my own, but I've got to find him in three days. Who do you have to find in three days? Look, Stone, I'm not going to kid with you anymore. I've got to make good on this job Berg gave me. I've got to get that fee. If I don't, this guy Dixie will... Who is this guy Dixie? Well, that's what drives me nuts. Nobody knows, only the syndicate. Well, why don't you go to the police? No, no, no. Cops are out of my line. If I could clean this job up in three days, Berg will pay me $5,000 and I'll be all right. Oh. It's like I've always said. All you need in life is one good break. And after that, you can roll on your own. Well, what about Burr? Well, for a big shot, he's sure plenty scared. Says the newspaper's trying to destroy him. Oh, so? So the only way they can do it is to find somebody named John Durand. I never heard of him. Nobody, but not to Burr. But what does Durand look like? Well, Burr wouldn't know what he looks like today. He hasn't seen him for 25 years. I've only got one thing to go on. Now, what's that? John Durand is a blind man. Uh a big shot like Burr afraid of a helpless blind man? Afraid? Burr's as frightened of that blind man, John Durand, as... as I am of my unknown pal, Dixie. Tom and I started work the next morning. Right after he picked up a fresh, sweet-smelling rose from Mr. and Mrs. Dunlop's florist shop in the lobby... It's funny, but for Tom, a flower in his lapel was like a shot of Benzedrine. 
After that, we split up. I went down to the paper to have a talk with the political editor. Yes, everyone interested in clean government was trying to wash that burr right out of their hair. But so far, nothing definite had turned up against him. Only a funny blank space in Burr's biography, a blank space that happened 25 years ago. And I got that ever-loving jackpot feeling. 25 years ago, that's when John Duran, the blind man, entered the picture. Tom and I had to find that blind man, and we had three days. Randy, I'm calling from City Hall. I've checked all the city directories. No John Duran. Oh, that's great. I visited every agency that helps the blind. Nobody's ever heard of it. Well, what are we going to do, Randy? What else can we do? We keep looking. He's not on any credit report. His name's never appeared on any police monitor. Well, we're running out of time. Well, nothing to do but keep looking. I've been going through the records over at the county building. I can't find a trace. We've got only one day left, Randy. The syndicate gave me till midnight tomorrow. What are we going to do? What we've been doing right along. Keep looking. The third day, we started making the rounds of all the hoodlum hangouts. The bars, the pool halls, the mangy little side street flop houses. I took one section of the city and Tom took the other. And late that night in one of those flop houses, I got the shock of my sweet life. No, nobody named John Durant ever stopped here. Well, I thought he might have stayed here under a phony name. He's a blind guy yeah, and Yeah, has... I know all about him, mister. You what? What did this poor sucker do anyhow? Every hoodlum I know is looking for him. What are you talking about? Just what I said. Every guy in town who'll cut a throat to earn a buck is looking for John Duran. It was after 9 p.m. when I got back to Tom's office to break the news to him. Poor guy, he thought Burr had given him an exclusive assignment. And all the time Burr had set up a private manhunt. He'd unleashed every mad dog in town to track down John Duran. When I got to the office, the door was open, but Tom wasn't around. I sat down to wait for him, and the phone started ringing. Hello? I'd like to speak to Mr. Paxton. Well, he's not around right now. Any message? Yes, this is Frank Burr calling. Oh, yes. You can tell Mr. Paxton that he can stop his search for John Durand as of now. Does that mean you found him? Oh, you know about it, eh? Oh, yes, I'm helping Paxton. Did you find Durand? No. I know where I can find him when I want to. I see. But then I, uh, I guess that winds things up. Yes. Tell Mr. Paxton, will you please? Yeah, I'll look, uh, as long as it's all over with. Why have you been so anxious to catch Durand? After all, he's only a blind man, and I... Mm-hmm. I'll ask a silly question, you get a silly answer. I had just hung up the phone, thinking, poor Tom, now there's no way out for him. His three days were just about all washed up. Now, there was nobody left but his friend, Dixie. And then, like I'd said a magic word or something, the door to Tom's office started slowly opening. Tom came in, leading a little old guy with smoked glasses and a white cane. Tom, you found him. You found Duran. I should be so lucky. No, this is Mr. Graham, one of the directors of the Institute for the Blind. Hello. How do you do? I'm going batty, banging my head against walls. I... Figured maybe Mr. Graham might give us a lead. Oh, uh, Mr. Graham, this is Randy Stone. How do you do, sir? I hope I can be of service. Oh, thank you, but uh, I'm afraid it's too late, Mr. Graham. Too late? What do you mean? A bird just called. He's found Duran. Uh, you can forget that $5,000 fee. You're uh, fired. Then Dixie comes into the picture again. The syndicate gave me only until tonight. Yeah, uh, excuse me while I make a call. 
Who are you calling? About 2,000 cops. Hang up the phone, Randy. What are you talking about? You need them now. Hang it up. Don't be nuts. All right, I'll hang it up for you. Now, what's that for? Call in the cops. Big deal. Maybe it would delay my trip to the morgue, but if that's the best I can get, it's no soap. The cops would protect you? Sure, for a week, two weeks, maybe even a month. But then what? Dixie would still be waiting. He's never missed an appointment. They'd pick him up before he reached you. There's a couple of small laws about killing people. How would they pick him up? They wanted him to know who to look for. Uh, uh, gentlemen, I, I seem to be intruding. If one of you will lead me to the elevator, I... Oh. You lead him, Randy. And then you get on the elevator right with him. Thanks for the try. Oh, now, wait a minute. Beat it, I... will you? I'm expecting a guest. Now, Mr. Graham, before we leave, uh, for my own amazement, I want to ask you something. Yes? Can you think of any reason why a powerful man like Burris should be afraid of a helpless blind man? Well, of course, that's hard to say. Randy, will you get out of here, the both of you? Unless, of course, the man saw something just before he went blind that would incriminate Mr. Burr. Hmm? Yes. You see, the blind never forget the last thing they see before they go blind. It stays alive in their mind until the moment they die. Well, then, if Durand had been a witness to a crime Burke committed and then went blind... That would indeed make him the greatest possible menace to Burke. Well, then, that's it. Hooray for our side. A lot of good it does me now. I can tell you how it was when I went blind. It happened quite suddenly, as the doctor said it would. I was out in the country with my family. Wildflowers everywhere. Now that my blindness has made me so overly sensitive to the lovely scent of flowers, the picture is even more real. You know, it's strange. The blind man kept talking softly, more to himself than to us. Tom had spun his swivel chair around so that he was looking out of the window. The back of his shirt collar was soaking wet. I knew the pressure was building up inside him like steam in a boiler. Absently, he'd been taking the ever-present flower from his lapel, and he was tearing it apart with nervous fingers. And then Tom's back stiffened. He was staring through the window down at the dark street. I looked over his shoulder. A big car had stopped a short way down the street. A heavy-set, well-dressed man had stepped out. As he passed under the street lamp in front of the flower shop, I recognized him from his pictures. Burr. It's Frank Burr. Tom's voice sounded cockeyed. I looked at him. His face was falling to pieces like an overripe melon. He was looking at the flower he'd taken from his lapel. <laughs> Mrs. Dunlop, she, she won't like what I'm doing to her flower. Always so proud because her husband could select sweet-scented flower. Graham, what did you say before? Now that my blindness has made me sensitive to the scent of flowers... Yes, I... Mr. Dunlop, the florist. I never had a good look at him. He was always puttering around and back. You think... I know. John Durand was always just downstairs in the lobby. And there's still time for me, Randy. There's still time. As Tom raced for the door of his office, he pulled a gun out of his coat. I followed him. He went to the elevator, pressed the button a couple of times, and then decided to take the stairs instead. He looked back at me, chasing after him, and waved me back. He started down the stairs two at a time. I caught up with him at the second landing. I grabbed his shoulders. He tried to tear himself away. Let me go, Randy. Let me go. What do you mean there's still time? What are you going to do down there? Randy, I'm telling you to let me go. Answer me. What are you going to do? Sure, I'll answer. You're over, boy. What do you think Burr was going to pay me $5,000 for? Just to give him Durand's address so he could send him nasty letters? No, there was one other little item I didn't tell you about. I not only had to find Durand, I had to make sure nobody else found him. I had to... I had to kill him. Oh, Tom, you're kidding. A helpless blind man? Oh, Burr thinks I'm the man for the job. He told me I was the ideal choice. Tom, you're not that kind of a man. Who says so? 
You think this is still the old football team with a lot of nice rules so nobody gets hurt too bad? This is the jungle, Rover Boy. It's dog-eat-dog all the way down the line. (gasps) Now, let me go. No. I said, let me go. He broke away and took off the stairs again. But Tom had put on a lot of fat since college days, and walking the night beat had kept me lean. I caught up with him just as we reached the lobby. Brandy, I'm telling you to lay off of me. Now, leave me alone. You're going to listen to reason. All you need is one good break. Well, this is mine, and I'm going to take it. Now, let me go. You're crazy. I can't let you do it. You'll have to let me do it, Randy. You're just going to have to let me do it. Tom brought the gun barrel down on my head. My knees turned to ginger beer. I reached for the wall to keep from falling, but the wall fell right with me. I tried to cry out, but all I could manage was a wheeze. Helplessly, I watched Tom, with the gun still in his hand, go through the lobby entrance into the florist shop. Oh, Tom! What on earth are you doing with that gun? At that moment, the front door opened, too, and Mr. Burr came into the shop, also carrying a gun. Don't do that! What a spot for a chorus of all Lang Syne. What's going on? Mr. Paxson, what is this? Huh? Is the job still mine? A smug little smile crossed Burr's face as he put his own gun away. Sure, why not, Paxton? A deal's a deal. He's in back working on his flowers. But it'll have to be her, too. Oh. Okay. Okay. No! Please! Tom! Tom raised his gun as old Lady Duran started running for her husband. And then Tom seemed to hesitate like something was going through his mind. Go on, go on. What are you waiting for? Maybe Tom was thinking about his last ten years on Skid Row when he'd never done one decent thing. And maybe he thought it was time to start. Go ahead and get it over with, Paxton. Suddenly, Tom swung the gun away from the cowering Durans and began shooting. There wasn't even time for that smug smile to leave Burr's face as Burr slowly crumbled to the floor. After that, everything started getting foggy for me. By the time the police arrived and splashed cold water on my face, Tom had gotten away, disappeared into the night. Burr was dead, and now John Durand wasn't afraid to talk. Twenty-five years before, Burr had been a punk in the rackets. There'd been a bombing. One man killed, John Durand blinded. And the picture Durand carried in his mind, the last thing he saw before the lights went out forever, was Burr throwing that bomb. After that, Durand was afraid Burr tried to finish the job, so he changed his name and went into hiding. I told the cops about the gambling syndicate that had been hounding Tom, and they went after the boys. And all in all, it was quite an evening. Then around 3.30 in the morning, when I was sitting up in my office trying to bat out my night beat story, my telephone started ringing. Yeah? Randy, this is Tom. Tom, hey, where are you? Never mind, I'm okay. I just wanted to let you know you. You were pretty good to me, kid. Listen, every cop in the city's looking for you. Well, they can look until Christmas. It won't do them any good. I've got a hideout that they couldn't find with radar. How come? <laughs> it's like I've always said. All you need is one good break. I got mine right out of a clear blue sky. Hmm? Yeah, real square. Met him at a bar. Didn't know where to turn. This guy buys me a drink. Says I look like I can stand a good meal and a place to sleep. He thinks I just blew into town and I'm down and out. Now he says I can stay here as long as I like. He's in the next room, so I gotta make this call short. Tom, I tell you, you're crazy for hiding out. The police will give you a break. Now, says who? I'm telling you they will. And even if they did, what about the syndicate? What about Dixie? There isn't any more syndicate. Most of those hoodlums are already sitting in jail. What? Dixie, too? No, but they'll have him soon enough. Now they've got a description of him. They know who to look for. Look, I, I gotta hang up. This guy's liable to pop in any second. But just for the records, what does Dixie look like? He's an ordinary fellow. He wears glasses, even. He's got gray hair. Looks more like an insurance man than a hoodlum. 
Dixie looks like that. The only two distinguishing marks, according to the police, is that thumb is missing from his left hand. Randy. Randy, has he got a white scar under his eye? How did you know that? Look, Randy, the guy that took me to this hideout, the guy that gave me the break, he's Dixie. What? Where are you? Quick, tell me. He's coming, Randy. Tom. No. 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 Tom. Tom. Operator. 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 Yeah. Like Tom always said, all you need is one good break. Sure, a nice, pleasant morrow coming right up. Well, maybe not so pleasant. Tom had been dead a long time before Dixie caught up with him. Tom had died when he found out he wasn't always going to be a hero, the guy on top of the heap. What is there about people that they've got to be number one or they won't play? What's so bad about being number two or number three? Why does life have to be one great victory after another? What's so fancy about us that we can't afford to fall on our face every so often? The fellow who said, God, give me the strength to fail, really had something. And besides, not making the top of the heap has its compensations, too. It's a lot less lonely down here among us also, Rand. Copy, boy. Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Written and edited by Larry Marcus. Music by Frank Worth. The part of Tom was played by Bill Conrad. Others in tonight's cast were Jeanette Nolan, Ted Von Elts, and Norman Field. Listen next week at this same time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. Nightbeat came to you transcribed from Hollywood. Stay tuned for the new Top Secret over most NBC stations. William Conrad made frequent appearances on Night Beat with Frank Lovejoy, and he was really good. He was good at uh, uh, kind of losing grip with reality, you know, just, just really kind of a man falling apart, falling to pieces. Of course, William Conrad went on to have a huge acting career, not only on Gunsmoke on radio, but also on several television series. Frank Lovejoy died very young, sadly. He was only in his 50s. Uh, it was too bad. He he was a good actor. I think Nightbeat was really his crowning achievement. He did a lot of radio in the 40s and 50s, 
but I, I don't think anything is better than Nightbeat. Just, just a classic, classic show. I have a number of uh, Nightbeat uh, episodes in my files, and we will play more in the weeks ahead. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, coming tonight. <laughs> well, if you're ready for a laugh, we have a show for you that is going to make you laugh out loud. This is a Jack Benny show. This was the show that was done around Thanksgiving in 1947. Original air date was November the 23rd. This is when he was still on NBC. And in this one, uh, for lack of a better title, Jack and Mary go shopping for a turkey. Now, remember, in 1947, Jack Benny and Mary Livingston had been married in real life for 20 years. But they never played a married couple on the show. And she was sort of a girlfriend, but he dated other women, too. And they just had this great, great relationship. She has some of the best lines in this one. This is a good episode. So let's go back to uh, November the 20... What did I say? The 23rd, 1947, for the Jack Benny Show. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, for many years as an announcer, it has been my privilege to introduce a number of very important people. But never have I felt the pride that is glowing within me today as I introduce the gracious and beloved star of our show. (laughs) Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me extreme pleasure to present to you a man whose very benevolence has earned for him the admiration, respect, and everlasting love of millions. And here he is, Jack Benny. Thank you. Hello again. This is Jack Benny talking. And Don, that was the most beautiful introduction I've ever received. The most touching. I mean, whatever made you think of it? There are only 27 more shopping days till Christmas. (laughs) What? And I don't want any more of those lousy shoelaces. (laughs) Oh, Don. Don, you didn't like the shoelaces I gave you last Christmas? No, I didn't. Well... What was the matter with them? I mean, were they too long or too short or or what? Well, Jack, now I've been with you 13 years, and I didn't think a pair of shoelaces was an appropriate Christmas gift. Oh. Well, Don, you silly boy. I mean, if you didn't like the shoelaces, you could have exchanged them for a box of Kleenex or or dental floss or something. Anyway, Don, I do appreciate the fact... Come in. 
Telegram for Jack Benny. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it, boy. Just a minute. Here's a tip for you. Yes, sir. I wonder who this telegram... You can go, boy. I gave you your tip. Mr. Benny, these ration stamps aren't good anymore. <laughs> Don't be so sure. My bicycle was paid for, I'd punch him right in the nose. <laughs> Go be nice to people. Jack, who's the telegram from? Uh, wait till I open it. Well, dear Jack, please be at the studio tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for further discussion. Signed, Jack Warner. Discussions about what? Uh, didn't I tell you, Don, the Warner brothers have finally decided to make that picture. You know, the story of my life. It's going to be a... Um... Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Mary. I, I, Mary, I've got wonderful news. Sorry, I did that. I mean, I've known you so many years. <laughs> Mary, I've got, I've got wonderful news. Warner Brothers is going to make the story of my life. Gee, that's swell. What gave them the idea? Well, after I made the horn blows at midnight, they received thousands of letters demanding the life of Jack Benny. <laughs> I wonder how they meant that. Anyway, uh... They've done a lot of work on the story. You mean they finished the script already? Yes, Marion, it's going to be great. You know, there's a lot of action in the opening scene. You see, in the opening scene, I've just been born, and as the doctor leaves the house, my father shoots him in the back. <laughs> it's really very exciting. Say, Jack, when they made the Jolson story, they had Larry Parks play the part of Al Jolson. Now, in your picture, who's going to play you? Well, we don't know yet, but to portray the real me, they're considering Errol Flynn. <laughs> I guess it's the way I've lived, you know what I mean? <laughs> then, there's, then there's also the possibility that they might use Clark Gable. Well, Jack, as long as it's the story of your life, why don't you play it yourself? Well, we thought of that, Mary, but we felt we needed someone who was attractive to women, you see. Oh, Jack, you're just as attractive to women as Clark Gable any day. Well, well, I wouldn't say that, Mary. I mean, that's sweet of you, but you see, Clark is a pretty handsome guy, you know. Oh, you're just being modest. You don't hear women talk about you like I do. Now, Mary, stop, will you? I'll, I mean, I'll admit I'm not homely, but, uh, but, uh, what, uh, what did the women say about me? You asked for it, brother. <laughs> Never mind. If you want to know something, Smarty, it wasn't so long ago I had dozens of girls all around me. That's when you were playing with Silk Batalny. Silk Batalny, Silk Batalny. He still owes me two weeks' salary. Anyway, I... Hey, Mr. Benny, when I sing my song, do you mind if oh. I... Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello. Mr. Benny, when I sing my song, do you mind if did I... Did you... Did you just get in? Yeah. Mr. Benny, when I sing my song, do you mind if how, I... How, uh... How do you feel, kid? Fine. Good. I broke my leg this morning, but I'm all right now. <laughs> Dennis, uh, just go ahead and sing your song. Well, aren't you going to ask me how I broke my leg? No, I'm not. Now go ahead with your song. My mother was right. You don't want me to get laughs. <laughs> not on silly things like that. Now go ahead and sing. Okay, but do you mind if I dedicate the song to my new girl? Oh, you have a new girl? Uh, what's her name? Thelma Gray, Hollywood 6265. Oh. Dennis, you didn't have to give Mr. Benny her phone number. I might as well. He'll force it out of me later. (laughs) 
Now, wait a minute, kid. When did I ever threaten you to get a girl's telephone number? Remember in New York when you took me to the top of the Empire State Building? Jack, you didn't. He held me over the edge by my suspenders. <laughs> well, you're lucky you didn't go out with that girl. You've still got your watch. Girls. But this girl's different, Mr. Benny. Oh, you, uh, you really like her, eh, Dennis? Yeah. Last week was her birthday, so I took her around to all the clubs. We went to Ciro's, the Macambo, Slapsy Maxie's. Really? How those places stay in business, I'll never know. We were the only ones in there. Dennis, what, uh, what night did you go? Oh, night! <laughs> Oh, for heaven's sake, go ahead and sing, kid. Okay. Hollywood, 6265. I must remember that. This time, I'll leave my watch home. As you walk, as you talk with the one you love, do you know just how lucky you are? Your heart sing how lucky you are. There's so many heartaches in this world of ours. Sometimes the dream will come true when the one that you love is in love with you. That's the greatest of blessings, my heart. And you don't know how lucky you are. Does your heart sing how lucky you are? By Dennis Day. Very good, Dennis. Say, Mary. Aren't you going to ask me how I broke my leg? <laughs> no, I'm not. And stop being silly. Now, what did I start to say? Oh, yeah. You know, Mary, I've been giving it a lot of thought, and I don't know just who would be the right one to play me in the life of Jack Benny. Well, how about Van Johnson? Well, he's good, Mary, but he, he isn't quite old enough, you know. How about Cornell Wilde? No, no, he isn't old enough either. How about John Wilkes Booth? <laughs> oh, stop John Wilkes Booth He broke his leg, too Dennis 
Aren't you going to ask me how? No, I'm not. But, Mary, I think... Gee, I don't know. Hiya, Jackson. What's that dreamy look on your face? Oh, hello, Phil. I'm thinking. You know, Warner's is going to make a picture of the story of my life, and we're trying to figure out who would be the right personality to play me. Why don't you play it yourself, Jackson? You're one of the greatest actors in show business. Huh? And coming from me, you know what that means. Yeah, there are only 27 more shopping days till Christmas. <laughs> but getting the right guy is really a problem. Hey, Jackson, I got an idea. Why don't you let me play the part? I'd be terrific. I'm handsome. I got personality, sex appeal. What more do you want? Well, Phil... Think I... it over, Dad. I'm alive. I'm sharp. I'm a sort of a Mickey Rooney with just enough Roddy McDowell to hold me down. <laughs> Phil, uh, Philzy boy, do you think for one moment that I'd let you play, do you think for one moment I'd let you play the lead in a picture as important as this one? You'd be drinking all the time. What's wrong with that? What? You made the horn blows at midnight and you were sober. <laughs> Not after the preview. Anyway, Phil. Hello, Livy. How you doing? Hello, Phil. Hiya, Dennis. How you feel, kid? I broke my leg this morning, but I'm all right now. Dennis. Just call me John Wilkes Booth. Dennis, keep quiet, will you? Now, Phil. Phil, I hate to be the one to suggest it, you see, but it's time for a number from your corny band. Corny band? Apparently, you haven't heard. Heard what? We were invited to go to England and play for the royal wedding. The royal wedding? Yes, sir. Right in Birmingham Palace. <laughs> Phil, that's Buckingham. If there's a buck in it, you'll know it. <laughs> Darn right. Now, come on, Phil. Let's have a band. Oh, wait a minute, Jack. Don't you think it's about time we do a commercial? Don, we're not going to do a commercial this week. Go ahead, Phil. But, Jack... Don, I'm running this show. Go ahead, Phil. But, Jack, the quartet worked on it all week. I don't care if they did. Go ahead, Phil. And there's a part in it where you play the violin. Hold it, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what were you saying, Don? Well, the sportsmen are going to do the poet and peasant overture And there's a place in it where you do a violin solo Well, that sounds pretty good See, I had no idea this was going to happen Guys, this is really a surprise Some surprise, unbutton your shirt and take out your violin <laughs> Okay, Don, uh, when do I come in? Just watch the boys, they'll give you your cue Good the Poet and Peasant Overture. Take it, boys. Me, 
They're from Kentucky. They smoke a lucky. They're so round and firm and holy. They are so fully packed. Yes, you will like a lucky trick. was really wonderful. It really was. And thanks for putting a part in it for me. I mean, the boys were just great, and the violin solo was out of this shirt. I mean, out of this shirt. <laughs> and by the way, kids, before I forget it, uh, next Thursday on Thanksgiving, I want you all to come over to my house for a turkey dinner. Turkey? Gee, I wonder if I could have one of the legs. Sure, kid. Why? I broke mine this morning. <laughs> Oh, for heaven's sake. Hey, Jackson, are you sure it's going to be a turkey? Of course I'm sure. Why? Well, last year you said you ran over a turkey, and when we bit into it, it turned out to be a buzzard. <laughs> well, it's a real turkey this time, isn't it, Mary? Yeah, I was with Jack when he bought it. That's right. In fact, yesterday I called him and suggested that he throw a Thanksgiving party for the whole gang. He must have been in a good mood because he went to the idea right away. Well, Mary, I'm glad you called, and it's a good suggestion. Huh? Fine, hurry over and we'll go shopping. Goodbye. Oh, Rochester. Yes, sir. Where have you been? Out in the garage trying to fix up the car. When you hit that truck last week, you bent the axle. Did you fix it? Uh-huh, but I had a lot of trouble. Trouble? Yeah, when I loosened the nut that holds the axle, the lights fell off. <laughs> oh. So I took a nut off the rear door to fix the lights and the steering wheel fell off. <laughs> Gee. Then I got the wire that holds the radiator and used it to tighten the steering wheel. And the radiator fell off? No, the fenders. <laughs> All four of them? All five of them. Five? We only have four fenders. How about the one we hold over our head when it rains? <laughs> I thought we used the side door for that. No, we used the side door to close the trunk in the back. <laughs> oh, yes. Gee, I must have hit that truck harder than I thought. Say, boss, when are they going to come out with those new cars with the motors in the rear? In 1948. Well, congratulations, you're a year ahead of them. <laughs> what, you mean the motors in the back of my car? About ten feet. <laughs> oh, stop making things up. Now, Rochester, I'm going to have the gang over Thursday for Thanksgiving dinner. What's in the refrigerator? The morning paper, a magazine, and your glasses. What? When that little light goes on, you ain't wasting it. I'm not talking about that. I mean food for Thanksgiving. Well, we've got everything except the turkey. You want me to go out and buy one? No, Miss Livingston is coming over, and we're going to... Well, that must be her now. So long, Rochester. We'll be back in about an hour. Mary, it's such a nice day. I'm glad we decided to walk to the market. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad Thanksgiving will be here soon. It's one of our nicest holidays. Yeah. And this year, we should all be so thankful. I know I am. 
See, when I wake up in the morning, I hear the birds singing. I've got the beautiful moonlight at night. I get all the fresh air I need, all the sunshine I want. So far, it hasn't cost you a dime. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mary, look. Hey, Mary, look, look over there. Those boys playing football. Hey, Joey, kick it to me now. See, they're nice kids, Mary. You know, the bigger one is T.B. Kent. His folks live on the corner. Every time I go out for a walk, I stop and talk with them. Hey, Stevie, throw the ball over here. Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Here it comes. Look out, I think it's too high. You have to run for it. Faster. You better jump for it. Wow, what a catch. Hey, that was a good catch. I got to hand it to you, Mary. <laughs> How, uh, how did you do it? I don't know, but you can buy me a new girdle for Christmas. <laughs> okay, you know, Mary, UCLA could have used you yesterday. <laughs> yes, sir. Hey, Mr. Benny, this is my friend, Joey. Hello, Joey. Hello, Mr. Benny. You know, Joey, Mr. Benny was all-American fullback when he played football for Yale. <laughs> Yale? And he broke the 100-yard dash record when he was in the Olympic Games. Gee whiz. Jack, did you tell these... And kids? Mr. Benny pitched two no-hit games in the World Series. <laughs> when he was with the New York Yankees. The Yankees? Oh, I was just lucky, that's all. Say, Mr. Benny, tell Joey about the time you knocked out Jack Dempsey. <laughs> oh, it was nothing, you see. It, it happened in the first round. We were mixing it in the center of the ring when suddenly Dempsey caught me with a powerful right hook to my chin. It shook me a little. I realized he was dangerous, so I... I decided to end it quickly. I shot two lefts to his midsection, crossed a right to the jaw, and down he went. I didn't mean to hit him so hard. He... You know, he was... He was out for over an hour. Ah. Well, so long, kids. We gotta get going. You know, Mary, I was just... Oh, shut up. <laughs> well, look, Mary, I only tell the kids stories like that because it helps them if they, you know, if they have a hero to look up to. Some hero. Anyway, I, I just tell the kids harmless little stories. I don't, I don't exaggerate too much. Oh, look, there's, there's little Georgie Foster. Isn't he cute? He's only four. Look at him. Hello, Georgie. Hello, Mr. President. <laughs> oh, brother. Mary, I never told him that. He's just ad-libbing. Come on, here. here here's the market. Let's see. Oh, there's the poultry department over there. Come on, Mary. Okay. And, Jack, remember what you promised. This time, you're going to get a nice big turkey, not like the last one you got. There was nothing small about that turkey. Go on. You didn't have the heart to chop its head off. You beat it to death in a badminton game. <laughs> Mary. And I got stuck with a part that went over the net last. <laughs> Mary, stop trying to switch old jokes, will you? <laughs> now, uh, let's walk over to the counter and see... Hello, Mr. Benny. <laughs> oh, hello, Mr. Kessler. Mr. 
Mr. Kitzel, what are you doing behind the meat counter? Oh, I'm helping out here for the holidays. Oh, you're, uh, you're just, you're just working here temporarily. Yes, huh? until my boss gets back from the wedding. The wedding? <laughs> In London? They had one there, too. <laughs> yes, yes, last Thursday. Oh. Well, look, Mr. Kitzel, I want to buy a turkey. Are they, are they very expensive? Expensive. <laughs> you mean, uh, you mean they're that high? Come here a minute. Huh? Step closer. Do you know that Toys are, what, what Toys are selling for today? No, 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 no. <laughs> well, if you knew, you'd be nervous too. Come a little closer. I don't want the turkey should get hammy. Oh, 80 cents a pound, that's a lot of money for turkeys. See, they got to live too. I suppose so. Say, Jack, while you're getting the turkey, I better shop around and get some things for the stuffing. I think I have everything at home, Mary. Well, what about cracker crumbs? Oh, I got plenty. Stale bread? Two loaves I've got. Oysters? One can. Sage? 38. What? <laughs> Oh, I thought you said something else. Yes, we, uh, we have everything. Well, Mr. Benner, what's your pleasure if I can be so accommodating? Well, I'd like to get a live turkey, about 25 pounds. Your live turkeys are over there, down by the end of the counter. Oh, yes, yes. I think I'll take that one on the right. You know, it looks nice and plump. Put on your glasses, that's my wife. <laughs> oh, yes. I wish I could get 80 cents a pound for her. <laughs> what? Nothing, I'm daydreaming. Well, now, Mr. Kitzel, what would you suggest? Well, if you want a nice life turkey, what about this one over here? Say, Jack, this one's nice and plump. I've seen turkeys look plump, and they're all full of feathers. I'm going to feel this one myself. Hold still, turkey. <laughs> You and your cold hands. Well, Mary, Mary, what do you think about it? Oh, it looks all right. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't have the heart to kill it. Oh, just look at its size. The same color as mine. Sultry summer blue. Oh, Jack, stop being so sentimental. You've already given up eating strawberries because they remind you of Phil Harris's eyes. Mary, Mr. Kittle, how much does this turkey weigh? About uh, 36 pounds. My scale is broken. Oh, oh, well, I'll weigh it on that scale over there by the door. Come here, turkey. That's a good girl. Come on, Mary, we'll go over the scale. Now, hold still, turkey. Mary, put in a penny. Okay. Oh, look, Jack. What does it say? You weigh 36 pounds, and you ain't long for this world. Well, there's a picture of Fred Allen on the other side there. <laughs> well, that's much too big. Oh, Mr. Kitzel. Your pleasure. 
this turkey's too big. How much does this one weigh? This one right here. I think 29 pounds. Aren't you sure? Wait a minute, I'll check. Oh, Hattie, how much does this turkey weigh? 29 pounds, but I'll check. Hey, Joe, how much does this turkey weigh? 29 pounds, but I'll check. Hey, Herman, how much does this turkey weigh? 29 pounds, but I'll check. Hey, Sam! All right, all right, I believe you. Jack, we'll be back in just a minute, but first... Remember what happens at the tobacco auctions? Year in, year out, at market after market, the makers of Lucky Strike consistently select and buy that naturally mild tobacco. Good night, folks. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. From November 23rd, 1947, that was the Jack Benny Show as heard on NBC. And that was just a classic episode. They just really had their chemistry working by the 40s, and it was just so good. And I love when Jack and Mary start sniping at one another, or she starts sniping at him in particular. Oh, Funny episode. Just a couple of uh, notes on that one. Uh, Jack Benny must, he was a football fan, obviously. He must have been a UCLA fan because uh, UCLA had lost the day before to SC, six to nothing. That was on November 23rd, 1947. By the way, that year, I think SC, I mean, UCLA did not, well, it had a winning record, but it wasn't a great record. I think it was six and four or something like that. But uh, that year, uh, SC went to the uh, Rose Bowl on January 1st and uh, got beat by Michigan, 48 to nothing. Also, Jack, or excuse me, well, Mary, I guess it was, mentioned, see if I can pronounce this, Phil Spitalny. She said uh, Jack was always surrounded by girls because he was hanging out with Phil Spitalny. I, but that's a hard name to say. Phil Spitalny was a Russian uh, musician. He came to the United States around just after the turn of the century, and he he played with bands and orchestras in Cleveland, in Pittsburgh, in uh, New York City. Sometime in the early 30s, he teamed up with Evelyn K. Klein, who was, I guess, a virtuoso violinist, and they put together an all-girl orchestra. They started a radio program in 1934 called The Hour of Charm. And that show was on the radio for 10 years. And then they started doing guest shots in movies. And they'd be on Ed Sullivan's show, Toast of the Town, and things like that. So they got fairly well known. So that's what Mary was referring to. Okay, as always, we'll have more episodes of The Jack Benny Show in the weeks ahead. I've been told by a number of listeners that they tune in mostly for gun smoke. But I, I did receive a, a note a few weeks back from a good friend Mark out in Vista, California. He's one of the ones that says he always goes right to gun smoke. But he said he wished we had more Westerns, particularly the six shooter. And he's right. 
The Six Shooter was one of the classic, classic radio programs. It only ran for one year and, of course, featured Jimmy Stewart. So we're going to see if we can't correct that. At least we're going to this week and, and also in the weeks ahead. So here's a really good episode of the Six Shooter. This one's pretty dramatic and it's very poignant. And this one was first broadcast on the 8th of April in 1954 on NBC. And it's entitled General Guilliford's Widow. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle unmarked. People call them both the sick shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as the sick shooter. A transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still remembered legends. We weren't exactly lost, Scar and me. Well, uh, not completely, anyhow. I had a sort of a general idea of our whereabouts, but I must have taken a wrong turn back at Glen Forks or we'd have reached Minton by now. The trouble was I'd never covered the southern part of the state before, and so for the last half hour, I sort of kept my eyes peeled for a ranch where I could get my bearings. Hadn't spotted any signs of civilization, though. There didn't seem to be any settlers along the trail. And when I finally did come within sight of a house, I almost missed it. And Scar, he didn't. He was thirsty and he could smell water. What's the matter, boy? What's the matter? What? Oh. Oh, oh, there it is. Oh. It was about a quarter of a mile east, nearly hidden in a clump of cottonwoods. Large, rambling, two-story building. Sort of gray-colored. Like it had been white once and needed a coat of paint. to wonder whether anybody still lived here. Easy, boy. Easy. Easy now. The steps leading up to the porch were cracked and broken, and a hole on the side window was stuffed with newspaper to keep the wind out. Hello? Anybody home? Who? Who is it? What do you want? Well, just some directions, ma'am. I'm looking for a trail to Menton. Yes, ma'am. You should have turned east at Glen Forks. Oh, oh, Trail past here is the old one. It's four miles longer and nobody uses it anymore. I see. Well, as long as it goes to Minton anyway. It's four miles longer and nobody uses it nowadays. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, still, it'd be shorter than going all the way back to Glen Forks, wouldn't it? I... I guess so. Yes, well, thanks, ma'am. Oh, oh uh... Oh, ma'am. Yeah? Uh, you don't have to have some extra water, do you, from a horse? Pump out and back. I'll show you. Oh, no. No need for you to trouble yourself. I'll find it. Come on, Scott. No trouble, Mr. Uh... Uh, Ponsett, ma'am. Britt Ponsett. Ponsett? I think I've heard my husband speak of you. Oh. You can use that bucket. Oh, here it is. Thanks. 
We've had a dry summer, very dry. It may take a while for it to start growing. Sure, sure. Brit Ponsett. Yes, I'm certain the general mentioned your name. The general? I'm Hannah Guilford. General Guilford's wife. Oh. Oh, well, I'm very pleased to meet you, Mrs. Guilford. Then, then you do know William. I knew him, yes. Yes, ma'am. I, I knew him when he was in command of Fort Clark. That was a couple of years before he... Fort Clark. I wasn't with him there. William thought it would be too dangerous. Indian. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The general will be very pleased when I tell him to stop by. He... He's taking a nap well, now, and I'd hate to wake him. But if you're going to be in Minton, well, perhaps some other day... But uh, I, I don't quite understand, ma'am. I I, I thought that I'm in... Mean... You don't believe me, do you? You're like all the others. You think he's dead. You think the Cheyennes killed him. No, no, Mrs. Gilbert. I, I tell you, I he's alive. General William Gilford's still alive! Well, Hannah Gilford wasn't the first woman to get rocked off balance by the shock of her husband's death. I was kind of surprised that she wasn't over it by now. It's been five years since the massacre at Red Hills. Five years since William Gilford and his cavalry regiment have been wiped out the last man. Easy, boy. Easy. Oh, I had enough? All right, come on. Anyway, I fled Scar away from the pump, and I started to climb into the saddle. Just then, the front door opened again. Huh. She looked different now, somehow. Clear-eyed, calm, sensible. Mr. Ponson? Yes, ma'am? I wonder if you'd do me a favor. Well, I'd be happy to, Miss Gilford. I've made a list of some supplies I need from Trailer's General Store in Minton. Would you ask Mr. Trailer to bring them out first thing in the morning? Oh, certainly, ma'am. Here. My husband and I were planning to take the buckboard into town this afternoon, but I don't think he's up to the drive. This way you'll save us the trip. You sure you don't mind? No, no, not a bit, not a bit. Bye, Miss Gilford. Bye. Don't forget to tell Mr. Trailer first thing in the morning. That's when I want them. She's not getting this stuff first thing in the morning or any other time. No? Uh, I can't go on supporting Hannah Guilford for the rest of her life, Mr. Ponsett. You can see that. Sure, sure. Uh, I know the general was a hero. Give his life fighting for the rest of us. But there's a limit. Uh, feeding her ain't enough. I have to send food for him, too. Yeah, well, I'm afraid I don't understand, Mr. Trailer. Well, look at this here list of hers. Here, right here. Two steaks for the general. You know how thick to cut them. Oh, let's see. Well, I'm not saying don't feel sorry for her, living out there all alone, cooking meals for him. There's talk she even sets his place at the table. Well, what are you... But she's carrying on like this for five years, Mr. Ponsett, refusing to believe that he's dead. Pretending that we're the ones who are crazy because we tell her the truth about him. Mm-hmm. Now, now we all thought, the folks here in town, that is, we thought she'd come to her senses long before this, but she don't. She seems to get worse all the time. Oh, well, that's too bad, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and it's not good for the town, either. Well, how's that? 
Well, you know how kids are. Oh. Uh, they get ideas. Well, some of them have been sneaking out to the Guilford Ranch, and they claim they've seen the general's ghost. Oh. Yeah. Next thing, it won't be just the kids who are talking that kind of foolishness. Mr. Ponsett, I've heard her carry on a conversation with the general. Is that so? Yeah, sometimes when I come up to the house with a load of food, she's chattering away like he was right there in the same room with her. Gives a man a peculiar feeling. That's all there is to it. Yeah, yeah, sure would. You don't think it's wrong of me not to give her the grub? No, it sounds like you've done about all you can for her, Mr. Trailer. Besides, it ain't just the food. It's a six-mile ride out there. And I have to close up my store while I'm gone and lose all that trade. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Why, Oh, what's the use? I... I keep saying I won't do it again. Keep telling myself I'll put my foot down for good and all, but I never do. I get to thinking about the general and how much we all owe him. Then I get to thinking about Hannah, too. How pretty she was when they got married. She was young and pretty. She was a lot younger than him, you know. Only about 20 at the time of the wedding. Let's see, that was 17... No, it was 18 years ago. 18? Well, it... You mean she... What did that make it? You mean... You mean she's only 38 now? Yeah, somewhere's in there. Or not mm-hmm. much older, anyway. You wouldn't think it to look at her, would you, Mr. Fonsett? You wouldn't think she was once the prettiest girl in Minton, now would you? Uh-huh. I guess she's been through a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I guess she has. Well, I suppose I might as well start getting her order together. If I have it all ready to take out there in the morning, I won't miss much business. In fact, the matter is, I won't miss any business. <laughs> Seems how I got the only general store here in Minton. Say, if it'd be of any help to you, Mr. Trailer, I could drive out to the Guilford Ranch tonight and deliver the supplies. No, 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 I wouldn't want to put you out. No, I haven't got anything else to do. The cattle I'm waiting for haven't showed up yet. Probably won't be here before morning. Well, if you're sure it won't be an imposition. No, not at all. I'd take it myself, but after seven before I close up, and then by the time I had supper, it makes it so darn late. Sure, I understand. It'll only take me a few minutes to fill her order. Oh, uh, why don't you just dip into that cookie barrel there while you wait? I left Scar at the livery stable and trailer loaded the grub for Mrs. Guilford into the buckboard. And I started off for the ranch. Come on. Get up. Get up. Come on. Get up. The sun had gone down by the time I got there. It wasn't dark yet, though. You could still see yellow and red over behind the mountains. But the evening star was getting brighter and brighter. Whoa, whoa, whoa now. Uh, I thought, sure, I... She must have heard me when I drove into the yard, but the front door hadn't opened yet, so I climbed off the seat, walked up those broken steps onto the porch, and the next thing I... Oh... I figured it was one of those conversations Trailer had told me about, that Hannah was talking to herself, pretending her husband was with her. And I, I felt kind of peculiar, too, the way Trailer said he felt. And I raised my hand to knock, and then all of a sudden I heard something else. 
something that told me I'd figured wrong. It's been five years. Don't you think I know how long it's been? Five years, you call it. To me, it's been 50. Well, there wasn't much doubt about who that voice belonged to. Even though I hadn't heard it since Fort Clark, Hannah Guilford wasn't pretending. And she wasn't talking to herself either. She was talking to her husband. The Sick Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponson. Well, for a minute or so, I just stood there in the Guilford porch listening. Like everybody else, I thought General Guilford was dead, that he'd been killed by the Cheyennes when his regiment was wiped out. Why, there was even a monument to him in the cemetery in Minton... I'd seen it that afternoon. There's a road path there. You know as well as I do, Hannah, we can't sell the ranch and we can't move away. If we were foolish enough to try that... Well, whatever the explanation was, it didn't need to concern me, and I turned and started for the buckboard. Right then, one of those cracked porch steps decided to give way. Well, I managed to keep up balance, but I'd made enough racket to drown out half a dozen conversations. Oh, uh, evening, ma'am. What do you want? Why did you come back? Well, I uh, brought the things you ordered from town. I thought I'd save Mr. Trailer a trip. Oh. I? I told the general you were here this afternoon. I, I was just talking about you, as a matter of fact. Yes, ma'am, I know. You know. I heard you, uh, and the general. Oh. Here, I'll help you get this stuff unloaded. Never mind. What? Don't bother with it now, Mr. Ponson. Just come into the house, please. Now, look, Mrs. Guilford, I didn't mean to be eavesdropping here. Doesn't matter. Somebody was bound to discover the truth. I thought it would happen before this. I almost hoped it would. This way, Mr. Ponson. Yes, ma'am. I followed Hannah Guilford through the front door... The general was sitting on the horsehair sofa. He hadn't aged at all since I last saw him. Funny, the years had speeded up on his wife, but they'd stopped dead still for him. And when he saw me, he got to his feet and he slipped on an army blouse. Even though the cloth had been patched and mended a dozen times, the jacket was still neatly pressed. still looked military. Hello, Britt. General? He heard us talking, William. He heard your voice, too. I see. Why did it have to be you, Britt? Well, I I don't quite understand. Anybody else? People would say it was their imagination. That they'd heard a ghost. But they'd never say that Britt Ponsett was imagining things. They'd believe you if you told them I was still alive. Oh, you... Never know what people are going to believe, General. What difference does it make now, William? Somebody was sure to find out sooner or later. Be quiet, Hannah. I, I want to think. There's nothing to think about. We have to face the truth, that's all. We? I'll stand by you. Always have, haven't I? Yes, my dear, yes. You, you've been very loyal. But I'm the one they'll court-martial. Not you. Court- Not both of us. Court-martial? 
The army doesn't look very favorably on desertion, Britt. Oh? It was an accident, of course. I... It wasn't intentional. It shouldn't have happened, I know, but my being there wouldn't have made any difference. They'd have all been killed anyway, and me along with them. I see. You weren't at the massacre then? No. I hadn't been feeling well for several days. I didn't know what it was, and the army doctor with us hadn't been able to help me, so I was riding for Browning when when it happened. Yes? If I had expected the Indians to attack, if I had had any idea there were so many of them, I would never have left my men. The scouts told us only seven or eight hundred. They said the Cheyennes were breaking camp, preparing to withdraw. If I had known there were so many, I would never have left. Yes, but I... How do you think I felt when that corporal caught up with me? The only man who escaped the slaughter. How do you think I felt when he told me what had happened and then died in my arms? Yes, well, maybe if he hadn't died, he'd been able to get help. I went back to them, back to my men. I saw what had happened with my own eyes. It was horrible. Mutilation. Awful. They were my responsibility, but it wasn't my fault. It wouldn't have made any difference if I had been there. But you should have explained it to the army. I was going to. I wanted to be sure that Hannah understood first. That she was prepared for the shock when the news came out. Then, then by the time I got there, it was too late. Too late? They were saying I was a hero, that I had died with my men. And if I had gone to the army, if I had told them my story, I wasn't sure they'd believe me. They might think I had deserted in the face of enemy fire. There was no one to back me up. No one. I couldn't go to the army. It was too late. I couldn't go to them. So you just stayed on here hiding. You don't know what I've gone through. Oh, I've had my punishment worse than any court-martial could give me. Living in darkness for five years, never seeing another person but Hannah, never talking to anybody else. Five years without smelling trees or feeling rain or having a cavalry horse under me. But your wife kept claiming you were alive. You knew that, didn't you? Of course I knew it. It was part of my plan. We had to have food enough for both of us. Clothes for me. That was the way Hannah could get them. I see. Tell everybody I'm alive, I said. Tell them I'm here with you. They'll only think you're crazy. Even if they should see me, if they should stumble onto the truth, they'll never believe it. My wife is a good actress... Isn't she, Britt? But no longer. Not anymore, William. What do you mean, my dear? Well, you said yourself folks will believe Mr. Ponsett. I said they would believe him. Would? Turn up the lamp, Hannah. My eyes aren't as good as they once were, Britt. I guess eyes need lots of daylight. Well, uh, I... Please, don't go yet. What's that gun for, General? A man changes a lot in five years. Some men do. Five years ago, if I had been forced to go back to the army, take my medicine, I'd have been able to do it. But now I can't, Britt. As miserable as I am here, as terrible as this life is, I won't give it up. Put it away, William. Put the gun away. If you fire, if you shoot Mr. Ponson, I'll know that you've lied to me all these years. It was your fault. The massacre, I'll know that you really are a coward. Go into the other room, Hannah. This does not concern you. No! me. I loved you, William. Even after you came back, after what happened, I still loved you. 
No, I know. Tonight, I know. I don't love you any longer. Any more than you love me. Hannah. Look at me, William. Look at my face, my hair. These five years have done that to me. You've done it to me. You mustn't upset yourself, Hannah. Another year or two, we'll be able to leave Minton. Live somewhere else. People won't recognize me then. People will always recognize you. Why do you think you haven't aged? Why do you think you look just the same? It's so people will always be able to tell who you are and you'll never feel safe. That's your punishment, William Guilford. I'm leaving now, General. No, Britt, you're not. Go ahead! Kill him! What's one more life to you? What's one more life to a man who left a whole regiment of soldiers to die? Your husband's not going to kill anybody, Mrs. Guilford. He said he changed in the last five years. Well, I think he has changed. I think he's become such a coward that even the sound of a gunshot would scare him half to death. Brent! I wouldn't be in particularly brave walking out in the general like that. You can pretty much tell what a man's going to do when he's holding a gun. The way his eyes look at you. And Guilford's eyes weren't staring at me like he meant business. I started to close the front door, and I just glanced back over my shoulder as I did it. Guilford was walking up the stairs. He was almost at the top, and then all of a sudden he kind of stumbled. Guilford! It's too late for that. No! No, it can't be. Better let me put him on the sofa here. William! William! You have any brandy, Mrs. Gilbert? Here now, now. Miss Gilbert. Brandy? Yes, ma'am. I think so. On the sideboard. All right, I'll get it. Yes, yes, give William some brandy and then he'll be all right. He will be all right, won't he, Mr. Constant? Here, drink this. Me? But I'm not sick. It's William who's sick. It's William who needs the brandy. The general's dead, Mrs. Gilford. No, no, you're wrong. That's just what people think. That's what we want them to think. But he isn't dead. He's here with me. He lives here in this house. You've got to get a hold of yourself, Mrs. Gilbert. Why do people keep saying the general is dead? Come on, get a hold of yourself here. Stop shaking me. Stop it. But I didn't stop. I went right on shaking you harder and harder and harder until I thought you were going to faint. And then... for For a second she went limp and let out a... Put if a little more. And then she straightened up and her expression changed. It was sort of like a window curtain being pulled back from in front of her eyes. I'm... I'm all right now, Mr. Potter. Well, I'm, I'm sorry if I hurt you any. You had to do it. If you hadn't, I don't know what would happen. 
Well, you, you'd better ride back into town with me and spend the night in there, and we can send somebody back here to take care of the general. I can't, Mr. Parks. I just can't let folks find out about it. Yeah, well, I'm afraid it's got to come out now. Everything? That he... That he left his men to die at the massacre? That he was ashamed to admit it? That he's been hiding here ever since? Isn't there some way we can leave him as he was? Any way at all? Well, I... I don't know. I just, under the circumstances, it's Not be for pretty myself. hard to... I don't care what happens to me. What they say about me, but he... The general had been a good soldier once. A fine soldier. What good will it do to destroy that? Well, I know, but I... It's just... Oh. Uh... Here, you, you'd... Better be careful there, Miss Guilford. What? Well, that table with the lamp on it, you almost knocked it over there. Oh. And, uh, if the lamp should get broken, you know, this whole place would probably go up in smoke before we could do anything about it. It wouldn't matter. The ranch doesn't mean anything to him. Not now. I could never live here again anyway. Yes, well, uh, all the same, we have to be careful, you know. Fire's very dangerous. Yes, yes, it is. Fire. Now, here, now, what are you doing? Now, put that lamp down. Fire. Fire. Come on, come on. Better hurry up and get out of here. Come on. Of course, they found the general's body in the ruins, but they didn't know who it was. And the report got around that it was a tramp tried to force his way into the house and she'd shot him. And the fire had been started during the scuffle. Everybody seemed satisfied by that. And uh, as long as nobody asked me, I didn't feel obliged to volunteer any additional information. The next time I came back to Menton, I... By George, I could hardly recognize Hannah Guilford. She, she was working in Trailer's General Store. And, uh, oh, she looked a good eight, ten years younger than she had before. There was even talk about her and Mr. Trailer getting married. <laughs> Seems that uh, after the fire, well, she sort of got a hold of herself, faced up to the fact that the general was dead. At least that's how Trailer explained it to me. He said that the the tramp breaking in on her has done some good. He showed me the fellow's grave. It was right in the shadow of the monument to General William Guilford. Transcribed NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burt and is written by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Parley Bear, and Robert Griffin. Special music for this program was by Basil Adler, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. 
All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. Oh, by the way, you'll be interested in knowing that the sick shooter has been chosen for broadcast to our men overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Services. This is John Wall speaking. Tonight, play Truth or Consequences with Ralph Edwards on the NBC Radio Network. That was Jimmy Stewart as the six shooter, Britt Ponsett. That one was first broadcast in April of 1954, General Guilliford's widow. Wasn't that good? Virginia Gregg was very good in that, and Parley Bear. What's that, Chester? Yeah, I know. Chester's a big fan of Parley Bear. He loves Parley Bear. And Parley Bear was so versatile. So great acting, wonderful script, very dramatic and poignant. And what else, what else can you say? It was just a classic, classic radio show. This week on Gunsmoke, we have a dramatic episode, really great story, and it's very, very tense. And it's one of my, well, I always say it's one of my favorites, but this really is one of my favorites. Uh, we've never played it before on Boomer Boulevard. It, came, it uh, was first broadcast on the 23rd of October back in 1955, and it's entitled Brush at Al-Qaeda. And it's a good one. And we'll talk a little bit about it if we have time on the other end. Here it goes. From October 1955, Gunsmoke and Brush at Al-Qaeda. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke.
starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Dodge had been real quiet all that week. No new herds had come up the trail, no buffalo hunters had drifted in off the prairie, no ox trains had arrived back from Santa Fe. The town just sat there like a plain girl at a party waiting to dance. But there was no dancing for Dodge. Not until Friday night there wasn't. I'd gone out to see a rancher friend that afternoon, and it was near midnight when I got back and rode up Front Street toward a small crowd gathered opposite the Long Branch. I dismounted and walked over. At the center of the crowd, I found Doc and Chester crouched over a man sprawled in the dust, a man somebody had put a bullet in. It's Ben Williams, Mr. Dillon. Who did it, Chester? Nobody don't know. He rode off too fast. Anybody see it? Miss Kitty did. She's standing over there by the Long Branch now. He's dead, Matt. There wasn't much I could do for him. Nice fellow like Ben Williams. Never hurt nobody. He bled to death. Somewhere's inside. Was he conscious at all, Doc? He was till a few minutes ago. He say anything about uh, who shot him or why? You know somebody called El Cater? El Cater? Right. That's a town, Doc, not a person. Well, they kept trying to say something about it. All I could make out was the name. I didn't want him talking anyway. As I recall, Williams came from up around El Cater, didn't he, Chester? Well, he had a little ranch up there one time. Yeah. Ben Williams was a good man, man. Yeah, Doc. Chester. Yes, sir? I'm going over and talk to Kitty for a minute. Find me a fresh horse and saddle one of your own, huh? We're going to be riding out of here in a few minutes. Yes, sir. I'll hurry, Mr. Dillon. I hope you get him, Matt. Whoever he is. Ben didn't deserve that, not being killed that way. He didn't deserve being killed at all, Kitty. Well, of course he didn't. How'd it happen? Well, Ben and I were having a drink inside, and we heard a couple of shots in the street here, and then somebody yelled for Ben to come out. Now, the man who killed him? It must have been. Ben didn't want to go, but I guess he figured he had to. I got by the window, and I could see Shippen out there on his horse. Shippen? Lou Shippen. That's what Ben said when he heard him yell. Yeah. All right, then what happened? Well... Ben walked out into the street, right up to him. He didn't even draw his gun, but Chippen must have been holding his in his lap. He suddenly shot Ben twice and then rode off as fast as he could. He murdered him, Matt. Can you tell me what this Chippen looked like, Kitty? Uh, it's too dark. I don't even know what color his horse was. Yeah. Yeah, that's not going to make him very easy to find. But you find him, Matt. You find him. All I had to go on was a name and a place. The place was El Cater, a little sunburnt town a hundred miles to the north. There was a saloon and a restaurant and a hotel and a stable and, miraculously, a telegraph office. But even so, El Cater didn't add up to much. It was still the crossroads of nothing. 
It was noon of the second day when we rode up the almost deserted main street. Hot, saddle-weary, hungry. Where are we going to go first, Mr. Jones? Uh, we'll put our horses in the stable chest and then we'll take a look around. Huh? I've already seen all I want to of this place. Except maybe the inside of that restaurant. And I've been thinking, Chester. Maybe we'll stop there first? Uh, oh, no, no. About Lou Shippen. Oh. I finally remembered. Uh, I've seen his name. You have? Where? He's wanted over in Wichita. And I can't remember his description. Well, that's easy. All you got to do now is telegraph for it. Yeah. Ain't there nobody at this stable? Yeah, it doesn't look like it. Well, here comes somebody. Hello. You got room for a couple of horses, mister? I reckon. They've had a hard ride. You got any grain? I might scare some up. Oh, good. Wait a minute. Yeah, what? Where'd you make this hard ride? Where are you from? Dodge. You're the marshal. Yeah, that's right. I thought marshals traveled alone. Well, sometimes they do. Well, I tell you, Marshal, I got a little mixed up. I'd been asleep. You woke me, I plumb forgot. Forgot what? I can't keep your horses here. There ain't no room. When I hear you just said you could. Stable's all full. And I got no corral. I can see some empty stalls through the door there. Them spoke for. What is it, mister? Everything was fine until I told you I'm a marshal. I can't help it if the stable's full. These horses are going in there, mister, and you're going to feed them. Now, look, Now, mister. we're going to be back directly to see that they're all right, and believe me, that better be. All right, let's take them in, Chester. much of a hotel. Yeah, we don't have much choice. My gracious, I ain't trouble where I'd rather sleep outdoors. Good morning, gentlemen. Hello. We're looking for a room. You mean two rooms? All right, two rooms. Of course, one room would be cheaper. And noisier. My friend here snores. Oh, now you always say that, but I never heard me snore. Well, if I ever thought you were lying awake snoring, I'd ram a gun barrel down your throat. Uh, now, gentlemen, please. <laughs> he don't mean it. <laughs> Do you, Mr. Dillon? Dillon? Marshal Dillon? Yeah, is there something wrong? No, no. You've been expecting me, is that right? I never heard of you before. Oh, that's one line. I tell me another one. Have you ever heard of Lou Shippen? Shipping? No, not around here. Never heard of him. Uh-huh. All right, let's see those rooms. I'm sorry, Marshal. I, I made a mistake. I forgot there are a lot of people coming in tonight. Our rooms are all taken. A lot of people coming in from war. No, it's true. I forgot all about it. Well, you just go on forgetting about it. Now, throw me a couple of those keys before I lose my temper. We're here and we're going to stay. <laughs> Like a frothy dog, Mr. Dillon. Like a what? You know, when them slavering dogs that run around drooling and biting people and making them sick. Oh. I never been treated so bad before in all my life. That's Lou Shippen, Chester. He's here somewhere. My guess says he's told everybody in town they gotta get us to move on. 
Well, why would they care? He's a killer, Chester, and they know it. And they're afraid of him. You want something? Yeah, I want to send a telegram. You do? Where? Wichita. Here, I wrote it out at the hotel. Sheriff Wichita need full description of Lou Shippen. All right, what's the matter? Nothing, nothing. Send to me an Al-Qaeda at once, Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Look, mister, if It's you'd... Hinkle, Marshal, Mr. Hinkle. All right, Mr. Hinkle, are you going to send that, or am I going to have trouble with you, too? Trouble? I know Lou Shippen's got this town scared to death of him, but maybe it's about time I made some of you people scared of me. I might as well start with you. Now, Marshal, I, I don't want any trouble. I'll send your telegram as soon as the line's free. Good. Come on, Chester. Shouldn't we ought to have waited to make sure he's really going to send it, Mr. Dillon? He isn't going to send it, Chester, and there's no way I can make him. Why ain't he? I don't know Morse code. He could send anything he wanted. Hmm. Doggone it, Mr. Dillon. This town scares me. Any man here might be loose shipping, just waiting for an easy chance to shoot you in the back. And I got an idea how I can smoke him out, Chester. I'm going to have to tell a few lies to do it. And right now, let's get something to eat, huh? What's wrong this time, Mr. Dillon? No, what? The way they eat. My, that restaurant puts out the mustiest smelling beef stew I ever smelled. That was goat stew, Chester. Goat? I need a drink. Ah, here's the place to get it. If they'll serve us. They'll serve us, all right. Goat Bartender. Hello, Marshal Dillon. Now, word gets around fast, doesn't it? El Cater's a small town. Uh-huh. Small and scared. I don't know what you mean. You don't know Lou Shippen either, do you? Lou Shippen? No, no, I, I don't know him. Well, he might be one of the men sitting at that table behind me there. You better do your drinking someplace else, There isn't Marshall. any other place. Now fetch us a bottle of rye or I'll come back there and do it myself. I aim to have a drink. Well? All right. Yeah. One of those men gave him a go-ahead sign, Chester. Did you see who it was? No, I didn't. I was watching the bartender. Uh, one of them's loose shipping. Yes, sir, but there's six of them to choose from... There comes a telegraph operator. Ah, uh, Mr. Henkel. Come over here. What do you want me for? I want to buy you a drink. Uh, bring a glass to Mr. Henkel, bartender. Here you are. I don't want a drink, Marshal. That's what you came in here for, wasn't it? I, I don't need a drink. Shepin, 
There's going to be a fight. You stay here, Mr. Hinkle. <laughs> all right, tell him it's all right to drink with me, Shippen. There are six of you men sitting there, and one of you is Lou Shippen. And by 10 o'clock tonight, I'm going to know which one. Isn't that right, Mr. Hinkle? I didn't send that telegram. That's the truth. I didn't send it. You sent it. I stood there and watched you. But I didn't. You sent my telegram, and we'll have an answer by 10 o'clock tonight. Now, you're lying. That isn't true. I'd be wasting my time here if it wasn't. Now, you drink up. Drink up, Mr. Hinkle. Okay, I'll be over about 10, Mr. Hinkle. I'm coming with you. Are you afraid of shipping? All right, come on. But I'm not going to wait around your office with you. You've got to help me, Marshal. He'll kill me now. All those lies you told. Which one is he, Mr. Hinkle? I can't tell you. Why not? He's a devil with a gun. He could kill you, and then where'd I be? All right, it doesn't matter. I'll find him later. But I didn't send any telegram. There ain't going to be an answer. Doesn't matter, Mr. Hinkle. What are you going to do? Now, for one thing, I'm going to see you're in your office tonight and that you stay there. That's all you have to worry about. I'll handle the rest. Close to half past nine, ain't it? Yeah, just about. Can you see Mr. Hinkle? Yeah, he's in there. He's pretty fidgety, too. Well, I don't blame him. He knows Lou Shippen's gonna come after him, and he don't know we're laying out here waiting. No, he doesn't. Maybe Shippen will figure you was lying and stay away? You can't take that chance, Chester. He's gotta come. Uh, we're sure stuck if he don't. We won't never find him. Quiet, Chester. Look coming. He's heading right for the telegraph office. Yeah. You stay here. Hold it, Shepard. I don't know. Watch him. So you're Lou Shippen, huh? You sure outsmarted me, Marshal. You was lying about Hinkle sending that telegram. Yeah. I had no way of knowing for sure. Shippen, why did you kill Ben Williams? Never liked him. You killed him because you didn't like him? Good reason is any for killing a man. Oh, my goodness. Why did you stay here in Al-Qaeda? Why didn't you ride on? Here's my home. Nobody's going to push me out of it. Except you, Marshal. You 
pushed me all the way out. Merciless. Well, I swear I never heard nothing like it, Mr. Dillon. He must have been plumb crazy. Uh, he's probably killed a lot of people we don't even know about, Chester. And for no better reason. Yeah. And it's a good thing he's dead. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it is. William Conrad. You know, some of the roughest citizens on the frontier were bred in Oklahoma territory. And uh, when two of them arrived in Dodge at the same time, well, it meant trouble. And that's our story for next week. So until then, good night. <laughs> Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Monday, October 24th is U.N. Day, the 10th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations. The strength of the U.N. as a force for peace depends on your support. Remember, the U.N. works for you. Be sure and listen to Gunsmoke again next week at this time. Transcribed for Chesterfield. was a John Meston script and he really had a a way of writing a death scene. They were very dramatic. You sure outsmarted me, Marshal. Here's my home. Nobody's gonna push me out of it. Except you, Marshal. You pushed me all the way out. Sometime, I, I think maybe I'll put a compilation of those together, of some of the great death scenes from Gunsmoke. You know, the man's dying breath. He was re really good at writing those. 
again, it was a John Meston script, and he wrote most of the scripts for about three years in there. And then he had editorial authority over other scripts that were written after he started working more on the, on the television show. As always, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next time we get together. All right, well, we're all out of time, so I'm going to pick up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't fret, folks. Don't fret. We'll be back next week with the Archive Show. Back in two weeks with a whole new slate of shows. So just carry on. Okay, this is Bob Bro, And I am so glad you stopped by. And I'm so glad you met.